You ready? I was born ready. And we have so much to get through. We're going to revisit some Law of War thoughts from the last episode uh, somewhat briefly. Then we are going straight to the Supreme Court. We, in fact, delayed our taping today just to listen to the racial gerrymandering case that was argued here on Wednesday. Uh, We're going to walk through that. It is hard. It is fact-based. I have taken copious notes to try to explain it to David. So we'll go with that. Uh, And finally, of course, we got lots of questions from you guys about what we think about these law students out there wading in to the wide world of putting out statements on current events and law firm rescinding an offer to one of those students. How do we feel? Okay. So, David, siege warfare. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, first, just to, like a peek behind the curtain, I'm going to be interviewing Sarah on the South Carolina case because sometimes we kind of have to pick each other up. And, and this is one of the circumstances where Sarah's got to pick me up because I've been writing a lot about Israel and Hamas and Gaza, which is why we're talking about siege warfare. Um, one of the things we did not cover in the whole conversation we had about law of war was siege warfare. And that was one of the good questions that people asked in the comments because Israel has announced a, a form of a siege uh, and it has said it's going to cut off everything, uh, food, water, et cetera, into Gaza. And people say, surely that's a law of war violation. Ooh, but Sarah, it's a lot more complicated than that. So I'm going to read to you from the Law of Land Warfare Manual. Um, this is under, the, con- uh, under the, the term siege. It is lawful to besiege enemy forces, i.e. to encircle them with a view towards inducing their surrender by cutting them off from reinforcements, supplies, and communications with the outside world. So you can not only conduct and siege and encircle, you can also impose measures to affirmatively prevent anyone, even outside entities, from delivering supplies to the enemy. So one of the short answer to questions is, can you besiege and cut off supplies? Yes, but, but here's a responsibility. Uh, In the past, the very next section, it was permissible, but an extreme measure to refuse to allow civilians to leave a besieged locality. So in other words, you could not only besiege a locality, you could keep everyone there. And it was permissible to use force to drive anyone who attempted to flee back into the besieged locality, but not anymore. Such prohibitions are now prohibited. Such actions are now prohibited. So there is now an affirmative uh, duty to make reasonable good faith efforts to, quote, conclude local agreements for the removal of wounded, sick, infirm, and aged persons, children, in maternity cases, et cetera, et cetera. So can Israel besiege? Yes. Wait, did they just call pregnant women maternity cases? Yes, maternity cases. This is the law of land warfare manual, Sarah, is not written with an eye towards sensitivity. That's good because they're not achieving it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're not. No, they're not maternity, maternity cases. Right. Um, so there is an obligation um, to allow people to to, you know, noncombatants to leave. And so right now we have this really um, fluid situation where Israel is telling civilians to move to specific areas within Gaza. Netanyahu has said you need to leave Gaza. Uh, the Egypt, however, is not permitting people to leave. There have been reports of airstrikes on one of the um, border crossings next to Egypt. So there's going to have to be a situation in which I- Israel, if it's going to comply with the law of war, is going to have to provide an accommodation for civilians. But the the declaration that we're going to besiege and cut off Gaza from supplies is consistent with the law of war. But that's not the entirety of the obligation. You can besiege, but you're also going to have to 
allow the, for the removal of people of non-combatants from that area. And that's where it's going to get really, really sticky um, and and could be for Israel one of its first real tests of its commitment to the law of armed conflict as this conflict unfolds. So I wanted to kind of throw that out there as well. And actually, the, the law of siege warfare is kind of unsettled right now, honestly, in international law. What I'm articulating is the American formulation, which mirrors much of the Israeli formulation and is rooted in the international law. But the international law of siege warfare is kind of unsettled at the moment. I have lots of non-legal thoughts on this and many other things related to this, but it's one piece of it, one tiny piece of it. It seems like such a complication to the narrative that either side wants, frankly, the like super right. clean, good guy, bad guy narrative, um, though particularly I think the, the pro-Palestinian narrative that Americans have on the left, which is distinct, I think, from the pro-Palestinian narrative, for instance, that Palestinians have. Right. Um, so the, the narrative here, um, it's complicating because Gaza has a border, two borders. Yeah. It has an Israeli border, but it has an Egyptian border. That border has been closed. Yeah. The Egyptians do not want this, whatever this is. Um, and I just, I find that to be an odd piece of this siege problem. They don't control all the borders to this place. They're right. not encircled, if that makes sense. Like Israel has not encircled all of their borders. Exactly. Israel doesn't actually have the ability to lay siege to Gaza fully. Without... And so is that an argument that they're not violating the laws of war because there is still an, a border that Israel has not closed? It actually is. It actually is. Although, Sarah, as we know, whenever there's a news report about sort of the the way in which Gaza is closed off, it always emphasizes Israel closing off its borders. It never emphasizes Egypt. Indeed. That's why I think there's, as I mentioned, my non-legal thoughts that I have as well. But this is a legal thought. Yeah. But so what would end up happening is if Egypt closes the border and Israel closes the border, then what you would have is kind of a joint, they are jointly together as a combined effort violating the humanitarian rights of civilians who want to leave. But it is not Egypt in isolation and it is not Israel in isolation, but a violation, to use the passive voice, a violation will have occurred. <laughs> it is just not entirely Israel's violation, it's not entirely Egypt's violation. but there's going to have to be a serious, a serious effort here to provide safe havens for civilians in this fight. And, but the difficulty is, what if Hamas doesn't want civilians to have safe havens? This is what happened in the ISIS fight in Mosul, is that ISIS had learned lessons from previous urban fights before Mosul where civilians had fled and it really allowed the ISF, the Iraqi security forces, kind of really free reign to just gut ISIS in the city. And so in Mosul, there was also on the, on, the part of, on the part of the ISF, there was a lot of confusion as to how to deal with civilians because there's so many of them in Mosul. It's almost 2 million people. And so, but ISIS used civilians as a military asset. In, in fact, even moving them from place to place to make them more vulnerable. Well, as someone pointed out, the Israelis are going to spend, I don't know what the right verb is there, hundreds of lives of IDF soldiers to do these sort of urban warfare to minimize civilian casualties unless they can get the civilians out. But as you said, it is not in the interest of Hamas to get the civilians out for exactly the reason that it will cost yep. Israeli lives if they can keep the civilians in. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, you know, with the civilians in, uh, I was talking to John Spencer. So how but how does that how does that factor into the laws of war? What's Israel? I, I guess it it's just is what it is. So Israel has to make it available for civilians to provide to it. Yeah, but if Hamas make... limits them from leaving and you know that there's civilians packed into Gaza, even if it's because Hamas wants them there, you can't flatten the place then. You have to go in. And do what like what happened in Mosul, which and that's going to cost lives. Yes, as as John Spencer, the head of urban warfare at West Point, said, what ends up happening is you have to walk in and they get to punch you in the face first, 
and then you respond. Now, Israel has trained for that. So they actually have a particular tactic and certain kinds of equipment that they use so that the first attack is not against soldiers, but against, say, bulldozers or tanks that draws the fire. So they try to control for it. But you're exactly right, Sarah. If Hamas clusters the civilians in, like ISIS did with, in Mosul, Israel's just got to go in there. It cannot flatten the place. It has to go in there. And in going in there, it's going to take losses because for Hamas, quite frankly, civilians are their biggest military asset. Right. Right. I mean, again, set aside actually the whose team you're on, quote unquote, if you're just, <laughs> what's your advantage? If you're Hamas, your advantage is not numbers. It's not technology. It's not anything else. It's that you'll force Israel in. Yeah. Otherwise, you lose. Right. And Israel can't just sit here outside of it and try to and just starve them out like that. It, it can't it can't really do that. And so um, now it can use siege warfare to put them under pressure. But this sort of idea at the end of the day that it's going to starve the civilian population to also starve Hamas. No, no, that's just not that's not going to ultimately fly. All right. This will be the last time we talk about this. I'm quite certain. No, but let's move forward. Nevertheless, so Supreme Court is back. It's here. We have interesting yes. cases that we talked about last week. Our new friends over at Empirical SCOTUS uh, have put together all of the words spoken for the first week of oral argument last week. And boy, one justice stands out among the nine. <laughs> so uh, Justice Jackson had 5,350 words. Runner up was Kagan with 3,000, 3,300, basically. Third runner up, uh, sorry, second runner up, I guess, Justice Sotomayor with 2,700. Then you get to the others uh, Alito, 2,100, Gorsuch, 2,100, Barrett, 1,900, Kavanaugh, 2,000, The Chief, 1,400, and Justice Thomas, 656 words spoken. Okay, but a few things on this. One, you have to remember a little bit, A, this is only word spoken, so it's not actually time. And while Justice mm -hmm. Jackson will still be the one with the most time, she also is the youngest and speaks the most quickly as young people speak faster than old people. <laughs> so I'm not totally surprised about the word count. But also, so if you think of arguments as being equally divided, and now, remember, we have these arguments where you get a set amount of time. It's a free-for-all. Then you go justice by justice. But let's say each side gets roughly an hour. In those cases that are going to be more ideologically split, one hour is going to be split among six justices, for example. Mm -hmm. And one hour is going to be split among only three justices. Because, of course, the justices that are in opposition to that lawyer are going to be the ones peppering them with the most questions. Right. And that's exactly what we saw last week. Now, again, I think it's not always going to be six, three along those ideological lines. But if, for instance, the chief is going to be on your team and he's just not a big speaker, well, then it's still going to be those three justices, even in a 5-4 case, et cetera, et cetera. Which is all to say, there's been like some dunking I've seen on Justice Jackson for talking too much. I don't know why. Like, what else do we have to do during oral argument other than talk? Words cannot express how little I care which justice talks the most. <laughs> yeah, and in the same way that I don't think it makes Justice Jackson smarter either to talk the most. Just like it doesn't make, there was this long-standing thing about Justice Thomas doesn't ask questions at oral argument because, like, he's not smart or something or he just does whatever Scalia tells him. I think that has been largely disproven. It's sort of like my beef with the Trump thing that people who think he's both um, stupid and an evil genius, depending yeah. on which one fits the facts. <laughs> like Or Biden, yeah. dementia or head of a cl clandestine crime family, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with the Justice Thomas narrative for so long. He was a stooge of Justice Scalia's, but also look at this grand conspiracy he's <laughs> leading up. Master. Yeah. Right. So like. The you're right. The word thing doesn't matter, but it is interesting. It's interesting. And also these are judges. These the, they're people, different people with different personalities. I Oh, you mean 
other cases presenting different allegations and different <laughs> records may lead to different conclusions. Yes. Now, I would find it absolutely, I would be, it would have a, I would have a different view of, for example, every dude was talking 4,000 words and every woman was talking 400 words. Then you would say, perhaps, huh? But if it's kind of all over the place and yeah, the, the progressive three who are constantly in a position of trying to sort of plead their case to the conservative six, they, you know, they speak roughly an equivalent amount of time as all of that makes just all the sense in the world. I think it's an interesting little trivia point, but it's, uh, to draw sort of some sort of moral conclusion from it is a, a bit much. By the way, a summer associate gave me a framed quote with that quote oh. on it. So I now, anytime on my desk, can reference it all I want. You mean your tattoo has worn off? <laughs> Thank you, summer associate. You know who you are. <laughs> okay, let's move on to this racial gerrymandering case. Oh, boy. This case. It's hard, David. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my okay. best. I, I'm going to do facts, then law. Okay, facts. We're going to be talking about Congressional District 1, CD1 is what I'm going to mm -hmm. call it, and CD6, all around Charleston County, South Carolina. So, as you know, we do the census every 10 years. After the 2020 census, CD1 had about 88,000 too many people, and CD6 had about 85,000 too few people. And remember, we have this like one man, one vote thing where we try to keep all the congressional districts about the same after the census. That's why you have to do redistricting all the time is because you got to keep roughly the same number of people in each of these districts. OK, so uh, CD1 in the 2010 version had about 17 percent black population. In the 2020 version, it has about a 17 percent black population. Also notable is that Jim Clyburn represents uh, CD6, mm -hmm. that this neighboring county that we're going to be, uh, sorry, it's neighboring congressional district that we're going to be talking about. And both the uh, state legislature dude who headed this up and Jim Clyburn both wanted Jim Clyburn to have a piece of Charleston County. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Jim Clyburn's so freaking powerful <laughs> everyone in Charleston wants Jim Clyburn right. to have a piece of their county because he's going to bring the bacon home, right? Or represent their interests. Um, he has the ear of the president. The president owes him big type thing. Big, but, huge. Huge. But the head of the legislature, who's a Republican, by the way, also wanted, uh, uh, you know, Charleston County and CD1 in this case to be a Republican. He said, in case the administration changes, which of course is not the reason. The reason is because he's a Republican. Yeah. Okay, so Charleston County wants uh, Jim Clyburn from CD6 to have a little piece of them and wants CD1, the main congressional district for Charleston County, to have a Republican. All right. And that Republican is, drum roll, drum roll please. Who is it? Isn't it Nancy Mace? Yeah, I think yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. So now let's move to some of the law here. If you remember in 2019, case called Rucho decided. This was the partisan gerrymandering case. And David, you'll remember this mm -hmm. quite well. That was both Maryland and North Carolina both had cases of partisan gerrymandering. And the Supreme Court said, not our problem, non-justiciable. If you want to politically gerrymander, go for it. It can be egregious, basically, and we're not going to touch it. Um, People were upset about that, but that's where the law is, is right now. It, is. it was yeah. a 5-4 decision. This is when Ginsburg was on the court. It So it fell along exact ideological lines, the conservative appointees on one side and the liberal appointees on the other. Okay. Now, this case was brought not under the Voting Rights Act, which, remember, is about um, majority-minority districts. That was the mm -hmm. Alabama case. This is not that because 17%, you're never getting a majority minority district right. here. So this isn't a Voting Rights Act case. It's not brought under the same law as Alabama. They brought it under the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment, which has two pieces that will be relevant here. One is basically racial gerrymandering, that race mm -hmm. was the predominant reason that you did the thing that you did, and vote dilution. 
this idea that you, it's sort of the opposite of the Voting Rights Act, <laughs> Section mm-hmm. 2 requirement, um, that you intentionally diluted the vote of, uh, in this case, Black Americans. All right. So the other part of the law that is relevant is that there is a presumption of good faith about the legislature's intent. And that the court has also said that you have to be very careful, for instance, in trying to disentangle politics from race. And of course, with black voting populations, that's going to be even harder to do because race is a pretty good predictor of what political party someone votes in right now. I don't know that it will be forever. It is now. But it is currently. The side that is challenging this has basically what I'm going to call the 17% theory. And their theory is the congressional district started at 17% and it ended at 17%. And you moved around 150,000 people <laughs> in the meantime. To keep so it the 17. only way, Yeah, the only way that that happens is if you were looking at that 17% number and using that as uh, a guiding light. And that that violates the uh, race predomination problem, um, the racial gerrymandering problem. Uh, prohibition in the 14th Amendment. But of course, the other side says, nah, it's just going to turn out that we were using politics. And the politics are that ended up being 17% each time because the two are kind of closely related. And you're not disentangling the politics and you're not using a presumption of good faith as you were supposed to use. All right, but there's a few things that are going to make this even more complicated. It is already head <laughs> head hurting complexity. Yes. The district court made factual findings here that the legislature, the Republican legislature's experts, but basically they just weren't credible to them when they said they didn't use race. Not credible. Now, they didn't actually say the guy seemed shifty or there was anything about his demeanor. They just said based on all this other circumstantial evidence that the other side presented, they found that more credible than him. So is the Supreme Court reviewing, like, now supposed to be super deferential to that, you know, fact finder? Yes. But what if that fact finder didn't use the correct legal standard, which was the presumption of good faith by the legislature? They never mentioned that presumption of good faith. The appellate, the, the, um, the three-judge panel never mentions uh, that. So, ooh, is this a legal standard? Or is it a highly deferential fact standard? All right. So we get into the oral argument. David, I'm just going to tell you, this was a very pretty 6-3 oral argument. Oh, was it really? Okay. (laughs) The chief was just having none of this. He seemed um, from the get uh, to find this all pretty unconvincing. Why? Because... The ones challenging the map never produced an alternative map that would do what the Republicans want, which is to make this a Republican district, move in these two counties that they want to, like the Jim Clyburn thing, like carve out and all of that, like all of their political objectives. There were two counties they wanted to move. They want to make it Republican and they want Jim Clyburn to represent a piece of the county. They never produced an alternative map that could do that. In fact, the alternative map that they produced uh, had a 20% black population mm-hmm. and it was a democratic district. Right. Because, and this gets to the heart of the whole reason this case is brought and there's some deep irony here. This is brought as a racial gerrymandering case by the Democrats against the Republicans. Why? Because the Democrats want to control the district. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you see why that's weird? Right. Like you're arguing it's a racial gerrymander, not a political gerrymander, even though what you want is also a political gerrymander. Right. And or the, a political outcome is what I should say. And your racial and and the increase, the district increase from 17 to 20 percent of black voters isn't enough to tip. They also have to move around per Democratic white voters. So, yes, in the Republican map, they moved more white Democratic voters than black Democratic voters, but as a percentage of the black voters of Charleston County, they moved like 50% of them. So it it also, we had arguments over percentages today. Was it, okay, this is, I swear, one of the back and forth. 93% of the people in the district stayed the same in CD1. 
And then one of the justices is like, is that correct? And he's like, yeah, according to this way to look at the numbers. And she's like, but according to this other way, it's 88.5%. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, oh now we've we can't even agree on how to count the statistics. And for instance, this turned into another problem with statistics. If you're doing a political gerrymander and you have one precinct that has, uh, you know, 900 Biden voters in it, but it has 950 Trump voters in it. Right. And you have another district that has 200 Biden voters in it, but 500 Trump voters. And anyway, it's like, which district do you politically want in? And one expert was saying the one and one expert was saying the other. And that very much matters to whether it's, you know, whether there's circumstantial evidence that they weren't correctly using politics. So if I'm going to say, okay, I've listened to all of this. Yeah. And I'm really, I want to figure this out case out compared to Allen v. Milligan, the Alabama redistricting case. Yeah. The difference is, in Allen v. Milligan, you're talking about creating two majority-minority districts. Yeah. Two, two majority-black districts. And this one, you're not talking about that at all. Correct. Either way, you're going to have a majority-majority district. Correct. The only question is whether it's Republican or Democrat. Right. And it's not, neither one are going to be very strong. This district has always been a bit of a toss-up. Uh, it was held by Republicans for a long time, went to Democrats in an upset in 2018, and then Republicans won it back in 2020. So Republicans are looking to make it, I believe I could get this a little bit wrong, 2% more Republican. So I have a, I'm torn here, Sarah. I am absolutely against outcome-based jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. And I want Nancy Mace redistricted into private citizenship. So <laughs> how can well, I accomplish both of these objectives? Unfortunately, if your only goal is to have Nancy Mace get districted out, that's not going to happen for this case. I, I think okay, it was okay. pretty clear. You had the chief um, coming up pretty strongly. One of the stronger oral arguments sort of hand tipping that I've seen uh, where he just he thought the alternative map thing was just such a deal breaker. If you can't produce an alternative map that has the political ends, how can you say that when they produced a map that did have the political ends they wanted, that it was a racial gerrymander when clearly you can't get to the politics without it having a 17 percent black population, so it seems. Um, Kavanaugh's questions were more like, hey, John Gore, the person representing the Republican legislature, hey, John Gore, um, tell me uh, what your case is. (laughs) Just super, super, you know, you didn't really get the chance to explain this part of your case. Right. Uh, Barrett's questions were more, more pointed, but not much you know, they were more like, hey, I'm looking at this, you know, can you explain this? To which there was an explanation. So um, this is the first case I've seen that is almost certainly going to be 6-3. Interesting. Along those ideological lines. Remember that last case I mentioned might be 6-3, but it might not be the 6 you think. <laughs> right. Um, this is the 6 you think. And, you know, obviously the 3 strongly disagree with the court's jurisprudence regarding the partisan gerrymandering. That's right. So they were on the other, well, except for Jackson, um, who wasn't on well, the court yet. But presumably, right. Yes, presumably. Um, and their points were, uh, for instance, there's no alternative map requirement. It's like a piece of evidence that you can use. And I'm right. like, yeah, but it's a pretty big piece of evidence here where you don't have anything to the legislature's intent, for instance, on racial gerrymandering. Um, they're saying that it was political. Your way to rebut that I think would be to say, aha, but see, look, we have this map that they could have done, but they don't have that. Um, and again, I just find this, I don't know if the word's ironic here, but like, <laughs> if you're arguing that it's a racial gerrymander and the only way you can fix the racial gerrymander is by flipping the partisan lead of the count or the CD yeah. to the way you want it. Are we really talking about racial gerrymander? Yeah. I mean, if, if, Let's put aside for a moment the whole question of should the Supreme Court have said that partisan gerrymandering is beyond our review? Let, it's just it is what it is for now. There's no indication that the majority is going to reverse that. So you're going to have to show something like even though it's not a Voting Rights Act case, you're going to have to show that this is racial, ger- racially gerrymandered. And it's really hard to do that when your solution to the racial gerrymander is just bringing in more white progressives. <laughs> that strikes me as a difficult argument to make. 
are, it seems to us almost a tacit admission that what we're dealing with here is a partisan gerrymander. But I think their best argument goes to that, like, is this a deferential standard to the fact finder or did the fact finder use the wrong law standard of this presumption of good faith? Um, And that's why they really led with that uh, the whole time. Um, And you saw the the three justices that are going to be in the dissent um, arguing really strongly on that. Like why we don't even get to look at all of these other arguments you're making because the fact finder said your guy wasn't credible. He did use race, according to the fact finder. And look, here's the evidence for that. One, he only had the 2020 precinct level data. And they're like, you know, Justice Kagan being like, you would never presume that the 2020 presidential results um, would inform, you know, with Donald Trump on the ballot, no less, would somehow be a good way to decide partisanship moving forward. The argument back to that is it was also a congressional race. And Yes, it is. And that, in fact, racial data wouldn't be particularly helpful because it doesn't tell you anything about turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, their other, I thought, argument on that was um, that the racial data was always sort of up on the computer screen as the map maker was doing his job, if that makes sense. And when right. he transmitted it to like members of the legislature and everything else, that racial data was also there. So they were able, their 17% theory, right? This idea that everything was done in order to keep the black population at 17% um, and that that is a racial gerrymander is really based on that, that the racial data was always available. And so anyone just sort of walking by and glancing could have said like, oh, it's creeping up to 18%. You better get it back down. Right. John Gore's pushback on that was, that's a really interesting theory. You just have no evidence for it. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And in fact, we're saying it was always political. You can't produce an alternative map. If you had someone on the record or some conversation or something else to which their the, you know, alternative responses, this is 2023. No one's going to sit there in an email and say, let's do a racial gerrymander. Make sure those black people aren't in my district. And so you're going to always, not always, it's, you're going to have to rely more and more on circumstantial evidence if you're ever going to be able to bring a racial gerrymander claim. And I think the response from the majority would be, so you better end up with a Milligan case then. You better bring these under the VRA. It's just maybe the racial gerrymanders on the 14th Amendment. Maybe we're kind of done with that. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, this is 2023, but where I live, you might have somebody write something like that. I mean, we're in the middle of just this unbelievable mayoral race that John Oliver of HBO covered because it was so over the top absurd with actual neo-Nazis showing up to support one of our candidates. I mean, I could go into the whole thing, but you're right. It is, it seems to me that absolutely the strongest argument is rooted in these fact finding. How how much do, do the findings of fact in the lower court dictate the analysis that SCOTUS has going forward? That That strikes me as absolutely 100% the best argument for the challengers. So... That's where that day ended up. Also worth noting that the Solicitor General's office was part of this argument. They said that the court should uphold the fact finding, right? The the um, racial gerrymandering. But that if they don't and they get to that vote dilution claim, because they're two separate claims, racial gerrymandering and vote dilution, that in fact, the courts had used the wrong legal test for vote dilution, Um Rather, they basically just said, like, once we found a racial gerrymander, it's all it's obviously also vote dilution. And the Solicitor General's office saying, well, actually, no. So here was the legal uh, standard for vote dilution. Uh, A vote dilution plaintiff must prove that the legislature sought to, quote, minimize or cancel out the voting potential of a racial or ethnic minority. And that this intent was a, quote, motivating factor, though not necessarily the predominant factor in the decision. Um, So. That's much closer to that VRA standard, right? Right. Because they use the same standard, really, as that racial gerrymandering standard. The Solicitor General's office isn't saying it's not a vote dilution. They're just saying they didn't apply the right legal standard. What I sort of found interesting about that and why I mention it is that it kind of goes to that previous question, David. If you didn't use the right standard for vote dilution, Mm -hmm. why are we trusting that you use the right standard, meaning that presumption of good faith for the racial gerrymandering when that was never mentioned either Mm -hmm. um it seems to me that the panel just 
maybe didn't do a great job here. Yeah. And it's, I think it's really important. I'm so glad you emphasized sort of the different factual situation, the, the profoundly different facts between the Alabama and the South Carolina case, because 100% guaranteed, I, I'm not a prophet. Uh, so this is not like a divine word of prophecy, but I still 100% guarantee that people will conflate the Alabama and the South Carolina case. And if this case does in fact come out differently from the Alabama case, in other words, the challengers lose, people will say that the Supreme Court is backsliding immediately following Allen v. Milligan when, wait, what's this? What's the word from Justice Jackson there on your desk? Other cases presenting different allegations and different records may lead to different conclusions. In this case, I would also add different laws and constitutional standards. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. All right, let's move on to, uh, you know, student groups putting out statements oh that gosh. are bonkers and whether employers should be able or should take those statements into account for employment decisions. So we're going to use one student in particular um, because it's a law student at NYU, the president of the Student Bar Association, which is student body president at a law mm -hmm. school. So here's the statement. Hi, y'all. This week, I want to express, first and foremost, my unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians and their resistance against oppression towards liberation and self-determination. Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. This regime of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. I will not condemn the Palestinian resistance. Instead, I condemn the violence of apartheid. I condemn the violence of settler colonialism. I condemn the violence of military occupation. I condemn the... And it goes on from there. Palestine will be free, your SBA president. Okay, so this person had been a summer associate at Winston and Strawn. This is a very well-known, large, sophisticated law firm with clients ranging uh, across the spectrum and across the world. So they put out a statement. Yep. <laughs> Today, Winston and Strawn learned that a former summer associate published certain inflammatory comments regarding Hamas's recent terrorist attack on Israel and distributed it to the NYU Student Bar Association. These comments profoundly conflict with Winston and Strawn's values as a firm. Accordingly, the firm has rescinded the law student's offer of employment. Uh, as communicated yesterday to all Winston personnel, we remain outraged and deeply saddened by the violent attack on Israel over the weekend. Our hearts go out to our Jewish colleagues, their families, and those affected. Winston stands in solidarity with Israel's right to exist in peace and condemns Hamas and the violence and destruction it has ignited in the strongest possible terms. We look forward to continuing to work together to eradicate anti-Semitism in all forms and to the day when hatred, bigotry, and violence against all people have been eliminated. Our strength lies in our unity, empathy, and shared humanity. This has sparked a bit of a conversation, David. It has sparked a conversation. So I want to start by backing up here because um, while Winston Strawn doesn't say this, I think it is fair to assume that probably some clients might have called their uh, relationship partners at Winston and Strawn and, you know, WTF and put some pressure on the law firm to do something. Let's just assume that's true for a second. How is that different than when clients put pressure on, for instance, Kirkland and Ellis after the Bruin case to not take on more gun cases, for instance? But yet the right at that point was like... Cancel culture. OMG. Yeah, cancel culture. Isn't this cancel culture? Okay. Oh, this conversation... 
I'm so looking forward to it. Okay, because we have to talk about what cancel culture is before we can even sort of have this. What is it about the whole concept of cancel culture that struck people as profoundly wrong? And it wasn't, I would submit, that people were imposing consequences for extremist speech. So if somebody walks in and they have a and they're a magna cum laude Harvard and they've got a swastika on their face, right? You would say, well, congratulations on doing well in blind grading in law school, but you're we're not putting you in front of a single client. You're goodbye. So everyone would say, well, of course, of course, there's a, sort of this. Yeah, we're, we're tolerant about free speech pri- as private individuals, but not for Nazis. <laughs> right. So there's always been this sort of sense that there are limits that a private organization and institution doesn't have to associate with every single person, regardless of how reprehensible their conduct or speech is. What made cancel culture a thing was when that that principle began to extend into, for lack of a better term, mainstream expression that you, in other words, could be a normal conservative or a normal progressive, say, and have no and and lose your job or be publicly canceled. And I love the way Nick, Nick, Nicholas Christakis defined cancel culture. And he says, a per example, cancel culture is one, forming a mob, two, to seek to get someone fired or disproportionately punished for three statements within the Overton window. But David. So, A, um, (laughs) getting someone fired, it presumed disproportionate that that was always disproportionate in number two there. So I might disagree with that a little bit. But uh, three, I think that some people would have defined it as um, things that are still very much up for debate, which is another way of saving the Overton window, perhaps. Right. Right. and, And let me give two different versions of this. One. Maybe the question of Israel versus Palestine very much is up for debate. Uh, Two, if you don't accept number one, fair enough. And I don't mean Israel versus Palestine, but for instance, beheading babies. uh, Right. Maybe not up for debate. Yeah, because what we're talking about here is not just who do you think should prevail in a struggle, whose vision of the Middle East should prevail, that you're talking about something much more specific. So again, like I'll put that as like A, but... B on the Overton window, isn't this really more about the anti-Semitic rot at a lot of universities, frankly, where oh. this law student could have very much felt that this statement was within the Overton window for everyone they've talked to, including their professors, um, in the places that they've been. I don't know where this person went to undergrad. Yeah. Um, and I don't know a lot about NYU. But... To feel so emboldened to send this out, I would argue this person thought they were in the Overton window. And that that's a failure by the institutions, not by the law student. Cannot agree more with you, Sarah, that we have what we have seen is in some universities and institutions is the creation of little bitty ideological hothouses. Where these people actually think and we're beginning to see some fallout from the just unbelievable statement put out by a coalition of Harvard student groups. We have little ideological hothouses created in some of these elite institutions where these people marinate in extremism and then are stunned, shocked when they turns out that what they're saying comes across to almost every decent human being as just reprehensible. Just and we and think about BLM Chicago puts out this thing, which is. Black Lives Matter Chicago puts out a thing showing some Palestinians coming in on paragliders, which is how some of the terrorists who massacred, massacred kids at a rave or at a dance, um, that's how they arrived was on these paragliders. And so this is celebrating people who massacred young adults and teenagers. And they're in their little ideological hothouse, Sarah. And I agree with you that. That is the, to me, that's the principal scandal here. And the other thing is, and I put this in Someone dispatch. made the, the joke on Twitter, you know, joke, haha, joke, not haha, however you want to think about it. There was Hamas has more support in the Ivy League than they do in Gaza. Oh, 
yeah, I mean, I don't even know how inaccurate that would be. And and look, I'm going to, and I put this in Dispatch Slack, these are not randomly created communities of high achieving students. Correct. You've got, you've got the two problems here. The, the problem that everyone who is talking about this focuses on, once these students are in their university, that they're getting this stuff from the administration, from their classes that aren't balanced and that are, are creating this hyper, as you say, like hothouse bubble of extreme beliefs. But you're about to get to the second problem that people don't talk about. The, I, I, oh, the second problem that people don't talk about? That they came this way. This is the admissions problem. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That, that, yes, exactly. Okay, so these are not, when you're looking at the Harvard student body, the Yale student body, Stanford student body, you name it, where we've had these controversies. This is not a random sample of 99 percentile LSAT uh, test takers. This is not a random sum- sample of 3.9 or 4.0 GPA undergrad folks. This is a curated community. It is an intentionally created curated community. And the admissions offices in these schools are putting this community, they're, they're putting this community together. And so I think it is incredibly important for people to realize, look, this is just not a cross section of the American elite. Sorry, it is not. And I'll also note, if you think that they're only picking extremists on the left, I don't think that's true. Oh, I think I they're picking extreme beliefs across any ideological, like if you're just like, I don't really know what I think about any particular political issue, like you're not getting in. But if you say I 100% cannot be, you know, ever waver from this position, whatever it is across the ideological spectrum, I think you're more likely to get it. Oh, I agree. They're they're bringing in people who are just uh, unquestioning their own beliefs at 17 years old. So like by definition, that's not someone I'm particularly interested in talking to. Yeah. Um, and then it's with whatever the topic is. Now it's going to tend to be more left wing because that's going to be the makeup of 17 year olds. So you're going to get especially coastal 17 year olds. Yeah. So you're going to get extremist 17 year olds that are predominantly left wing. (laughs) And then you're going to put them in an environment together. And then you're saying, yeah, but you should know the Overton window in the rest of America. And this gets to my question, David, given all of this. What are you supposed to do with this student if you're Winston Strawn? Did they do the right thing? I think they did the right thing. Like I, so let me go back a little bit to this. Um, this the other thing is a lot of these admissions committees and some of these folks really love activists. They want they they like to see a record of activism. I've been an activist in my life, Sarah. Nothing against activists, but by golly. If you're an activist at age 17 on a complex issue of, of domestic or... Yeah, this is, you're unquestioning, unwavering, and incurious at 17 on one issue, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, st- I'm not like, you're 17, dude. Unless the yeah. issue is what it's like to be 16, you're not an expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to be coming to school curious. That's what but they're selecting against curiosity. Exactly. And it's a massive problem. So and then when they get there, they're being fed that they're right. (laughs) If you're on the left. Right. And the law of group polarization takes over, which means when you when like minded gather, they become more extreme. So they walk in, they're surrounded by a bunch of people who have the same point of view. They have professors with much the same point of view. And then they 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 ramp up their extremism. I wrote a piece, Sarah, because I've been wrestling with this issue forever, and I'll put it in. We'll put it in the show notes. And this is going to be like a blast from the past. But I basically make a pretty simple, um, I make a pretty, uh, I make an argument about a distinction between two individuals, Colin Kaepernick and Roseanne Barr. Okay, so I don't know if you remember, uh, everyone remembers Colin Kaepernick and taking the knee. And then next thing you know, he's kind of out of the NFL, not kind of, kind of out of the NFL. He's out of the NFL. And there's been a huge fight ever since about was he out of the NFL on the merits of his poor play, which is kind of hard to believe considering some of the quarterbacks that have, for example, helmed the Tennessee Titans in the interim. Um, but or is he out of the NFL because he took a knee and he led the movement to take a knee? And then there's Roseanne Barr, who sent out an utterly grotesque racist tweet against Valerie Jarrett. Just gross, gross, raw racism. And then if you remember, Sarah, 
blamed uh, Ambien for it. With the best corporate statement ever. Best cor- Amb- Racism is not a side effect of Ambien. <laughs> <laughs> and so the question is, okay, can I, can I, how do you look at it? Do you just say if you're against, quote, if you're against cancel culture, does that mean that ABC has to stick with Roseanne Barr, even if she's grossly racist? Or can we actually make distinctions? And I proposed a distinction in the Washington Post, which is essentially something along the lines of, let's not check our moral, we, we cannot check grace at the door, but we also cannot check our morality at the door. So how do you harmonize grace and morality? And the way you harmonize it is, if somebody is making a good faith argument, even if it's offensive to you, then, you know, let's have some grace. Let's have some grace. But then there are arguments and there are assertions that are just quite frankly so far beyond the pale. You can't, you couldn't see the good faith with an electron microscope. And that's where we were with Roseanne Barr. Now, I don't quite put this person's statement as Roseanne Barr's statements a little bit more sophisticated, for example, than Roseanne Barr's. But when you penetrate through what she was very emphatically defending. It's gross, horrific, gross, gross, gross. And and so in my view, if you just, even in an atmosphere of grace, there are still lines. And if one of the lines isn't, um, I'm defending beheading babies, for example, or burning families alive, where are we? So I think that Winston Strawn made the right decision, but I think their statement was a little off. Mm. I think the statement should have been, this shows such poor judgment that we can't have <laughs> right. you as a lawyer at our law firm, yeah. rather than um, what I, again, thought was sort of Kirkland's problem of like, our clients say they don't want us to do gun stuff. By the way, I think at the time I said like, Kirkland's making a financial decision. I don't know what you want them to do. They're a business. Mm-hmm. I think where people get a little um, un, like discomfited about the whole thing is that these same corporations keep putting out statements on events that they have no particular business oh, yeah. putting out statements yeah. on, like after the Dobbs case, for instance, or after George Floyd or after, um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, like in all of these cases, lots and lots of statements. And then this happens in their silence. And it's like, well, then, yeah, people are going to read into your silence differently. Um, can I read a section of GW, Students for Justice in Palestine oh, statement? Oh, gosh, yeah. We refuse to be subjected to this dehumanization any longer. We reject the distinction between civilian and militant. We reject the distinction between settler and soldier. Every Palestinian is a civilian, even if they hold arms. A settler is an aggressor, a soldier, and an occupier, even if they are lounging on our occupied beaches. Um, it, you know, as the IOF calls up thousands of reserves, it is clear that all settlers are soldiers. There exists a colonizer and a colonized, an oppressor and an oppressed. These people cannot be dissociated from resistance because we are in a constant state of resistance. This struggle has been imposed on the Palestinian people to resist to survive and to resist as a right. So a few things with this. One, imagine being a Jewish student on GW's campus right now where they're saying not only do they, it's a we, right? Mm -hmm. We don't uh, distinguish between civilians and militants and also says that um, you know, any Israeli in the United States, for instance, is also part of this. Um, if you're a Jewish student on that campus, I'd be deeply concerned. Not only are they saying that all of the atrocities that were committed were fully justified. Yeah. But in fact, can continue, should continue, whatever Can else. continue, absolutely. And then they held a rally on campus last night for the martyrs of Palestine, meaning any of the Hamas terrorists who were killed during their terrorism. Um, they covered their faces. They said that they were covering them so that people couldn't pinpoint, you know, who they were later. So masked people <laughs> are meeting outside your dorm <laughs> um, about this. Uh, so, right. Not great. And I think that the institutions have done a huge disservice to their students. I think the admissions office has done a huge disservice to their students. Yep. And... These universities are sort of left, I think, scratching their heads as to how this happened. 
Um, and they themselves have been slow putting out statements and then are like, but you can't read into that. It's like, well, you were very quick putting out statements. Harvard was flying the Ukrainian flag at one point. Um, there is an anti-Semitism problem at universities. We've seen it in the lawsuits, right? Where for DEI purposes, the Jewish faculty members or employees were forced into a white affinity, affinity group. Yep. And it's like, well, this might be why they're not so comfortable in the white affinity group. White people aren't being targeted. Jews are being targeted. Right. And also these students, I will just say, don't seem to have any grasp of the actual history of what they're talking about. None. Like it's weird. It's it's like, where do they think the Jews came from? It I like I would love to ask that question because it seems to me that they think the Jews came from Europe in 1948. Well, and and this is this is where this act admitting activists again, like uh, if by a bias towards activism is really a huge problem because these folks are coming into an environment, they're 16, 17, 18 years old, their knowledge is a millimeter deep, but they're extraordinary, like their degree of confidence and their knowledge is actually inversely proportionate to their actual knowledge. And so you talk to somebody for five seconds and you just think, what planet are you living on here? You know, they don't. And and you see a lot of this and it's remarkable, Sarah. So I, I, I just keep going back to this. Like, I just You think the Jews are European. How do you think they got into Europe? Why do you think they ended up in Europe? Do you like, do you have any, like the, the Bible, which you don't need to be hugely familiar with, kind of tells you a lot of the story. And I mean, the New Testament here kind of tells yeah. you a lot of the story of the Jews. <laughs> um, like slaves, they were... They were turned into slaves by the Romans and yeah. marched out of where they were from. Oh. <laughs> and then they were sent into Europe and then they were killed in Europe. That's like the order of operations here. I feel like it just their history starts with the Holocaust. And it's like, no, 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 no. But even if it did, but no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Like, and yeah. I was reading this amazing thing. So um, Ashkenazi Jews, according to uh, this, this, study that was published in last year 2022 um are likely descended from about 350 people there becomes this basically genetic bottleneck like why do you think there were only 350 left and they they did this a lot based on some research in this place in germany uh, a cemetery that they found dating from uh, the late 1300s and early 1400s and they have both now the remains to go with and sort of what they know from events at the time. And this is just like the most telling. So there's a Jewish population in this town. They're in prayers on Saturday. So they lock the doors and burn everyone in it. Hmm. Sounds about right. Now there's no Jews in the town. And then they come up on financial difficulties, right? Because that's what happens when you don't have Jews, I guess. So then they put an APB out to all the Jews around saying, we need Jews in our town. So then Jews come to their town and you know how this ends. <laughs> then there's another pogrom and they <sighs> kill and kick out all the Jews again. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's only funny in like it's total inevitability and predictability. If you know anything then about the history of Jews. Well, and the other thing is this sort of idea. So, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to defend everything that Israel has done, every military tactic that it has used, any more than I defend everything the United States has done or every military tactic that we've used. But it is it remains the the fact that from the beginning, even if you're going back to 1948 and the initial like Declaration of Independence, that was a very small, almost rump state that declared independence. And the larger Arab world said no. You cannot have that at all. And then spent decades trying to use extreme military force to extinguish Israel, period. Okay. And if you look at Hamas, Hamas does not say we need to live in peace side by side with Israel. They want to extinguish Israel, period. Like it just doesn't. And then you have, again, people don't realize this, the amount of ethnic cleansing of Jews from surrounding Arab states, the before and after populations. Right. This isn't just about Israel. This whole, like, 
trying to couch this as simply against Israel, I hope this proves it's not about Israel. Because you know what? If you simply don't like the government of Israel or think that you should have your own government, you're not raping women next to their dead friends. You're not killing right. a grandmother with a live, you know, with a while videotaping on her private phone and uploading it to her Facebook feed. And you're not beheading babies. Then why would you need to behead babies? And this idea that like babies are soldiers, I'd love for you to like actually have to work out the logic of the statement that you wrote. Um, but then you just kill them. Fine. But you don't torture. And you don't live broadcast that. And I would like to hear, how is your statement different from a statement a Nazi would make? Oh, it's not. But it's anyway, not. we're going to leave that be. We've, we've veered off uh, a couple notes. One, we're going to have a circuit palooza here coming up in our next episode. We've got a circuit roundup that we need to do, as well as an interesting question on why circuits tend to maintain their partisan lean or ideological lean um, through different administrations, the Ninth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, et cetera. So we'll answer that in the next episode. And also, thank you for those who waited on the doornail situation. Dead as a doornail, meaning that those nails have to be bent after they're put in around the door frame, whatever. And so they're no longer usable. They're dead nails. Fine, except they still weren't alive, which was my animating <laughs> principle uh, to begin with. See, animating. <laughs> but we did get some just tremendous responses from listeners, both in the email inbox and to the in the comments. I knew we would as soon as we raised the origin of dead as a doornail. And <laughs> that's why I love our listeners. They know things. They know things. They do. And with that, thank you. We'll talk to you next time. 